bases its values on, and it's written in our founding documents, that value is the Judeo-Christian ethic. And so what that means, Judeo-Christian, it means the influence of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament on one's values, laws, and ethical code. And in fact, the very Declaration of Independence appealed to uh, the laws of nature and nature's God. And it was an appeal to the world uh, for the United States to separate from Great Britain. The appeal was unto God and nature's law and nature's God. So, I mean, within the foundation of the Christian Judeo ethic is the concept that God is over our liberty. He protects our liberties, not governments. As a matter of fact, governments have to be submissive to the laws of nature and nature's God in God's authority. And so that's what our founding fathers were appealing to. I went through that last week for you as a history. Probably one of the most influential people of concerning uh, and the most influential movement concerning the founding of our nation is the Protestant Reformation and John Calvin. And so much of our government is based on a biblical model. And that's what we looked at last week. And then we began looking at the seven principles. The first one was the sanctity of life. That uh, God is the, we're made in God's image. And God is the creator of life, and we must protect life from conception to grave. Amen? And so we are to protect life in our nation. So I want you to remember one of the key elements to our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. And that is our appeal to the laws of nature and nature's God. Laws of nature and nature's God. They are self-evident, the founders believed, that all men understand it, all men see it and know it, but they may reject it, but yet it is self-evident. And so we're going to continue to make that appeal tonight on the law of nature and nature's God. We understand who nature's God is, don't we? And we know that it is Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we will follow him and understand him. Now, these first three that we're going to talk about, I want to show you that they are, in fact, creation mandates. They were introduced at creation. And these mandates in these first three principles, the value of life, the value of marriage and family, and the value of work and labor, those were constituted actually in the very creation by God. Therefore, they supersede human government. They're found in nature's law and nature's God within the created realm that he began in Genesis. And so we know that we were created in God's image, right? And therefore we should honor the value of life. And that's a creation mandate. That's right from the beginning. As a matter of fact, how many of you remember that right after the fall was the first murder, wasn't it? And that was between Cain and Abel. And so we know that as a creation mandate, we need to value life. Well, let's get right into it tonight, and what I want to do is bring you to the second principle that we're at, and that is the Judeo-Christian ethic, that is a, one of the seven principles in the United States of America's ethic, is that we value marriage and family. And so let me share with you a couple verses. Immediately in the creation mandate, we see in Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to or cleave or cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this propagation is the sense of really what is bringing life to planet Earth. Out of the two, they become one. 
And that's not just in physical intimacy, but literally creating human life. There's a sanctity to life and a sanctity to the process of creating life. All right? We're not like animals. We don't simply procreate in heat. We don't procreate at a particular season, but in family units. It is the foundation of any society. And God's creation mandate and structure for a society is that one man and one woman shall bear the children and bring in a righteous offspring to the Lord. Let's look at what Hebrews 13.4 says, and this is something that we honored at one time in the United States. Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in what? Honor among how many? All. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We're going to get into that a little bit here as we study. How do you honor marriage? The first way to honor marriage is to understand it's a creation mandate. It's not mandated by the state or federal government. It's not mandated by any human government. It's mandated by God. It was established by God as God introduced Eve to Adam. So it's a creation mandate. And it's known throughout all history and all time and in all nations. They figured this one out biologically. And they figured this one out through the, their own social structures that this is God's pattern and the best pattern. So we honor marriage as something from God. We don't redefine what God has defined. All right? We'll get into that in a few minutes. Uh, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, what does that mean, the marriage bed undefiled? When we get further into Scripture, we're going to see that there are particular sexual restrictions that God mandates for the health and sanctity of the family. All right? Otherwise, if you begin violating the honor and sanctity of the marriage union, you will begin to break down family structures and it will have a negative impact on society. Does, does this sound right to you? All right, we're seeing it in front of our eyes today. And so God has a mandate on how marriage should look and how it should be run. The nucleus and well-being of any society is the family unit. So let me share with you two particular enemies of marriage and a strong society. When a society no longer honors the sanctity of marriage, it begins to have ill effect on that society. How many of you know that one of the main things we've lost in our society is the care of our children? You see, we've all become so adult-oriented to our adult desires, wants, and needs, we've forgotten to care for the children. And when people are selfishly concerned with their adult issues, they no longer pay attention to how they talk in front of children, what they do in front of children, what they say about children, how they treat children, and what their entertainment is, and so forth, right? And so this begins to break down generation after generation, and it has a very negative impact on society. So, two of the enemies, number one is divorce, and the second is sexual sin. And God had some mandates concerning these two things so that he could preserve the family unit so that it could preserve the society. He gave this law code to Israel, and if you'll ever study Leviticus or the book of Deuteronomy, we spent 
a couple years ago. We spent a long time in the book of Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, and we saw the beauty of God's design. If you'll remember, what he said to Israel was this, if you will follow my laws that I have made with you, you will become the envy of all nations. All nations will look to you as a light. They will look to you and say, how is it that Israel has such an amazing society? Because they're following God's rules, his creation mandates on how things should be run. Remember, this is his world, not ours. And so there's a way that this world should operate. And when we violate the laws of nature and nature's God, we will then begin to corrupt and break down society as a cancer can break down the healthy cells of a body. And so two of the things, cancers if you will, that have a negative effect on marriage is divorce and sexual sin. Let's take a look at that. All right, Matthew 19, Jesus speaks about it and says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now you can speak to that individually to each marriage, that what you pledge together before God should not be separated. But I also believe you can take this even further in the general message of marriage itself. That what God has ordained and created and designed for marriage, let no man separate. All right? You cannot dissolve the definition of marriage. We're in a fight right now and in a battle, even today, over the definition of marriage as it's being redefined. Can I tell you something? That's a misnomer. You cannot redefine marriage. Marriage is only one thing the union between a man and a woman, to redefine it takes and breaks the definition of marriage. It dissolves marriage and its defining. It's separating the meaning of marriage from God's purpose. Let no man separate what God has joined together. This is God's design. So if we begin to say you can have two men marry, two women marry, you can have three men marry one woman or four women marry one man, and why not begin to multiply those numbers, right? Then, then you're not redefining marriage, you're dismantling marriage and separating it from the one who designed it. Does that make sense to you? All right, so divorce is something that unfortunately happens. The reason it happens, Jesus said, is because the heart is of man's heart, because of sin. Now within the law, God had given certain provision for times when divorce was permitted. Now, there are, God can heal any situation and can resolve any breakup of a marriage. He can do this if we would yield ourselves to him. But there are times because of sin where that doesn't happen and God, in fact, allows for divorce. But when divorce becomes something uh, that is no longer uh, uh, looked at as a failure of a marriage and something that we should avoid and that the church itself should be ministering and helping and healing in, if it's just something that we use now to get through life, it will have a negative impact on our children, on our families, and on our society. All right? Divorce was a big issue in Israel. Okay? That's what the book of Malachi is about, the putting away. The priesthood would have, would, would have wives... And then, and then what they would do is they'd go after younger women and, and throw their wives out and get a new one. 
And the whole book of Malachi is that God is saying to them, you need to be faithful to the wives of your youth. All right? And so God was saying, I hate the putting away. I hate divorce. And so what God's saying is it's, it's having a negative impact on the nation and on the people of Israel. Now, we'll get into that in a minute. So divorce is a real problem to marriage, isn't it? It's the, it's the breaking apart. Here's one of the reasons there is so much divorce, and that is sexual sin. Now, we're to keep marriage and honor it and sustain it. And America always had a founding belief that marriage was sacred and holy. Now, there are those who don't believe in God. There are those who are secular people, and they don't want to go to a church to get married, so they go to a magistrate or a judge and so forth. But they still make vows, don't they? They make legal vows to join together, although even that is now being minimized to where people are simply living together, right? I was watching, uh, I, mean, I don't know how many of you watch HG, H, what is it, HGTV, right? The, 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 where they're buying houses and they're doing these things. And I'm always watching and, and these people say, well, my name's Joe and this is Betty and this is my girlfriend. We've been together for 18 months and we're going to buy a house. I'm going, Really? You're going to buy a house. You're both putting tens of thousands of dollars in on this thing, and you don't even know if you're going to be together next week. No commitment to each other, but we're going to commit to buy a house. You'll sign a contract for a house. You'll sign a contract for a loan, but you won't sign a contract to each other. This is a problem in my thinking. Right? Anyways, okay. So, sexual sins... You see, now there's a problem where sex was designed, as a matter of fact, as the cutting of covenant. It's through the sexual intercourse, through the act of sex, that in fact marriage was made and marriage is to be consummated. It is the cutting of covenant, in fact. All right? And so it was designed for marriage. When two would come together, they would become one flesh. They would speak their vows to each other. They would give each other a covenant symbol or sign that represented the vows they made. But that marriage was not complete until it was what? Consummated. That consummating or the cutting of covenant or the act of making covenant was sexual intercourse. And so that is what bound a covenant together between a man and a woman. So therefore, if the sexual act is a holy and sacred act of binding two together, any other sexual acts are going to be a perversion of the marriage act. So therefore, God lists what sexual sins there were and how they're perversions of what sex was designed for. He goes on in Leviticus 18 and he says this. He lists a whole long list of who you should not have sexual relations with. All right? You can look that up. He says you shouldn't have sex with your father's wife. You know, some of this is like, really, I can figure this out. You shouldn't have sex with your mother. You shouldn't have sex with, you know, uh, uh, back your cousin, with your aunt, with your sister, with your brother. Incestual relationships. Lists a whole bunch. Now let me ask you something. Why would God have to list who you shouldn't have sex with. Because they were having sex with all these people. All right? You leave man alone in his depravity, and guess what he's going to do? Find all sorts of crazy things to do. 
uh, and, and we can even see it today. So God had to spell it out so that man could understand what sex was designed for. It was designed for the marriage covenant and union to be honored unto God to keep your word. So the first part of it is sexual relationships with other people is out. That's called fornication. All right? So sexual union is reserved for the act of covenant in a marriage. And that's who you're married to and that's who you have sex with to celebrate your covenant and to give birth to children uh, and to renew your covenant vows and the intimacy you have with each other. So sex before marriage is called fornication. All right? Because you shouldn't be sleeping with one person and tearing apart from them going to another person in an act of covenant and tearing it apart. Right now, for many people, they don't understand the depth and meaning of sex. It's just recreational. This is a real issue. Even in the church, people see it as just something recreational. And they're missing the sanctity of what God designed it for. Now, the second aspect is, if you have sex with someone and you're married or they're married, that's called what? Adultery. You are making covenant with someone else who's already in covenant to someone else. Or you yourself is in covenant with your mate and you have sex with someone else. You're breaking and violating the covenant you just made with that person. So fornication and adultery is out. Sex is limited to the marriage. And we as a nation have always understood that fidelity in a marriage is its health and safety for your home and for your children and for your longevity of prosperity and well-being. A healthy home and family will give you peace and blessing in life. Now, the next one he talks about is you shouldn't sacrifice your children to Molech, false gods. This is a no-brainer. Don't kill your children. All right? Why did he have to write that? They were sacrificing their babies to Molech. Now, I like to explain to people who Molech is because a lot of folks don't know that God. We don't see him, you know, there's not too many people who worship Molech anymore. But what Molech was was a particular God that had a dog head and his hands out like this. They would make brazen or bronze sculptures that were hollowed out of this God that was a fertility God and in the sculpture, his hands were laid out like this. They were hollow. And in order to have good crops or get that God's blessing, this is the children of Israel. They would take their babies. They would stoke a fire inside the, that statue and that sculpture till it became red hot. And they would lay their babies on the hands of that image as that baby would writhe in pain and scream as it's being burned to death. Offering their children... For the sake of a better crop. And we shake our heads, but most of us don't have any problems with the convenience of abortions that are being done every day with vacuum cleaners. We look at offering babies to Moloch as something hideous, but we have no problem with killing a baby even into the point of right before delivery, reaching up and crushing the skull before the baby's brought fully out of the birth canal. That, this is all viable and legal in the United States, folks. So we've got an issue here, don't we? And God says we're not to be sacrificing our children to idols. And there's one idol in America, and that is 
my own personal well-being above another. It's another way of putting women's right to choose whether she wants to kill her baby or not. That is not a right to be made. Now, let's go on. You can see how sexual sin got there, right? Sexual sin gets you into that place. Now, I understand that there are extenuating circumstances, but I'm speaking in general to these issues. Last of all, he then lists uh, that it is an abomination for a man to lie with a man as he does with a woman. Now, I'm not going to go into the, uh, the homosexual agenda and their reinterpretation of Scripture. This really does not need reinterpretation. It's very, very uh, succinct and, and right to the point. You shouldn't lay with a man as you do a woman. And they're not talking about going camping together or this or that. They're talking about laying together, having sex together. You shall not have sex with the same sex. That is, and God says, an abomination. Now that's no small word. And again, the homosexual agenda says, well, that word means this or it means that. An abomination to God means it's wrong. It's a curse, okay? Then last of all, he says, you shall not lie with an with a animal as you do with a woman or a man. Okay, so no bestiality, which is on the rise and is the next form of sexual perversion. You have to remember something in the sequence of sexual sin. It's a level of degradation because it stimulates people uh, and it becomes a drug, an addiction. And so where the person starts with pornography and extramarital affairs, they'll move, and you can see this from the 60s on, at the, how much it has progressed in our society. When the pill was made, and now you could have sex without having children, and contraception was developed in a greater degree, the sexual revolution took off, didn't it? And when the sexual revolution took off, there's an increase in adultery, an increase in divorce, an increase then in sexual promiscuity, and therefore it goes to the next level of homosexual activity, which is going to go to the next level of uh, titillating and, and fantasy and eroticism into the realm of bestiality. So which I would go back to the honor and sanctity of marriage if a man, can, and, and now people will say this is absurd, but I, I wonder if it is. If a man can marry another man, why can't a man marry his goat? I remember standing in protest uh, a couple weeks, a couple months ago. I was out at, down in Detroit in the city, and we were protesting the judge overturning. He, it was the day that he decided to overturn the 2.6 million voters that said no on gay marriage. He was there, and, and we as pastors and leaders met there to speak out on traditional marriage. And as we were there and walking around, um, there were some folks who were pro-homosexual. So I wanted to talk with them, I wanted to meet with them, and so I, I stepped aside to a couple young ladies that were lesbians, and they were a couple. And so we got to talking, why are you here, what's your point of view, and here's mine, and, and we were having a very civil conversation. I wanted to present the side so they understood what we were talking, why we were here, and uh, explaining why the pastors were relating through scripture and this and that, and what's your story, and they told me their story, and so forth. 
And the one, the one girl said she believed in God and wanted to know God in a greater way and so forth. So we're having a good conversation. And I said, look, you really have to understand the reason we're here is because if you overturn this law for uh, homosexual marriage, why then couldn't you have two men marry three women and so forth? You're redesigning it. She said, well, I don't know about that. And I said, well, what about NAMBLA, the National Association of Man-Boy Love? I don't know if you're familiar with NAMBLA, but the National Association of Man-Boy Love are men who love, basically, they're pedophiles. They want children under 12, males under 12. And so I said, what is going to prevent them from wanting to marry a 12-year-old or this or that? And the young girl said, the young woman, she said, well, I don't think we would allow that to happen. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, I think that the homosexual community would agree with the straight community and we'd come together and make an amendment or a law that would forbid it. Do you see the irony of that discussion while we're out front of the court with signs? I mean, excuse me, young lady, but I'm standing here because there is already a law in place saying homosexuality in marriage is wrong, and you're here to overturn it, and later that day the judge did. See, so I'm making my point that we have got to keep marriage sacred. What I want to show you now is some of these conditions, and I, and I want you to read what happened to Israel when these sexual sins began to break down marriages and divorce began to break down marriages. The rest of Leviticus 18 says this, for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it is vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. That is a warning from God to the people that if... I don't care if you're the chosen people or not. If you pollute the land... Now, here we go back to the creation mandate. God often, and many times in scriptures, calls the earth to be his witness. You've got to remember, and that's why we sang that song tonight, this is my father's world. This is his world. This is his design. And if we pollute it with our sin for our purposes... He will cause the earth to expel you. Okay? Now let me ask you this question. Where are we in the United States of America in the land of the free and the home of the brave? What's going to happen? What will this land do if we continue to stain it with aborted baby's blood and we continue to sin against God through sexual perversions and sins and redefine marriage according to sexual perversion instead of God's righteous act of marriage, what will happen to this nation? According to this word, the land will vomit us out as a people till the next group can inhabit it. Judgment, in other words, will come. Unless, unless, we have a story in line with this. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God had come to vomit that and crush and destroy that culture, didn't he? 
because of its perversions, right? But he came to the righteous of the earth, Abraham. And Abraham was able to contend and intercede on behalf of that nation. And God would spare the nation if the righteous would repent and intercede. And Abraham was able to say, Lord, if there's 50 righteous, would you spare them? He said, yes. 40, yes. 30, yes. 20, yes. 10, yes. If we just took that as a ratio, if there were 10% of that nation righteous interceding on behalf of God's holiness, would he spare the nation? Yes. America boasts that it's got, well, it used to boast 90%. I would say we're down to about 70% of confessing Christians. That's well over 10%, isn't it? Wouldn't it be something if 70% Christians showed up at the polls? They don't. Be lucky to get 30. That's crazy, isn't it? You want to talk about intercession. It makes absolutely no sense for a Christian to pray for this nation but not go to the poll and vote. That is absurd. Absolutely absurd. Absolutely. So, so God heal our land. He says, I put it in your hands. You do something with it and steward with it. So, all right, back to our point here. So we've got to begin, and that's why we're in this series, to intercede for this nation and do something about it. Now, let me just share with you some statistics as to where we're at as a nation and what's going on. These facts were uh, uh, compiled by Dr. Tyler Hendricks of the True Value Fail uh, Family Values Institute. From 1901 to 1970, the divorce rate increased by 700%. From 1900, there were 56,000 divorces in America. In 1992, 1 1.2 million. That's a 700% increase. Now, just from 1970 to 1992, the divorce rate increased 279%. The number of children with a divorced parent increased 352%. The cohabitation population increased 533%, which means 2.7 million unmarried households. 40% of them have children. So is marriage being honored as it used to be in our society? Absolutely not. Who's responsible to teach the society what is sacred? The church. All right? Now, we need to get things back on track again. And we need to get back to the business of the kingdom of God and not get caught up in our own personal prosperity. But care for this nation once again. Amen? Between 1970 and 1995, the percentage of married couples with children dropped by a third, but single-parent families nearly doubled. In 1960, 243,000 children were living with a single parent who had never married. By 1993, this figure has risen to 6.3 million. Marriage is not being honored, nor sustained. 1.2 million children per year are born into fatherless homes. America has 1.8 million latchkey kids. 20 years ago, 70% of American children grew up without a father. Today, 36% do. 
Men have been marginalized in this country. Men are basically buffoons. They're set aside. Watch the, look at any sitcom, watch any TV program. The dad is the comic relief. He's not taken seriously, right? Basically, what, what, what men end up doing is, is, is basically being wild and carefree and irresponsible and cannot make commitments. This is, this is sad. In 1968, million children living only with their mother. In 1995, 23 million. The three fastest growing forms of the family in the United States from 1980 to 95 are single mother families, blended families, and divorced families. Let me go furthermore. Research has now established a clear link between the breakdown of the family and the major problems plaguing our society. How many of you know that this has a huge impact on our educational system, on our housing system, on our economic system, on our jail system? It does, doesn't it? All of this impacts society because the the nucleus of society, the family, has not been honored and has not been maintained. And we need to pay attention to that. Divorce is the leading cause of childhood depression. 75% of adolescent patients at chemical abuse uh, centers are from single-parent families. 63% of youth suicides are single-parent children. 70% of teenage pregnancies are single-parent children. 70%. 75% of juveniles in youth correction facilities are single-parent families. Children of divorce are five times more likely to be suspended from school three times more likely to need psychological counseling, two times more likely to repeat a grade, and are absent from school more often, late to school more often, and show more health problems. Do you think God knew what he was talking about when he was saying, at all efforts, keep your marriage and learn to hold on to it for the the sake of the society, amen? Now let me finish up with this, and again, the ethic. This is the ethic of the United States. It is the Judeo-Christian ethic. We should not back down from these discussions if you understand the design of God. God meant for good, not for evil. He meant these things to bless us and hold our society together. We do not need to back away from a discussion that you're prudish and you're old-fashioned. No, we're not. We're operating in what is the most healthy system ever devised for mankind. It's called the gospel. Instead of redefining marriage, I call it the deconstruction of marriage. The LGBT, if you understand what that stands for, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transvestites, This is some statistics from them. 1.8% of the population are bisexuals. 1.7% are gay or lesbian. 0.3% are transgender. That comes to 3.8% of the population. Gallup actually uh, disagrees with that, and the latest Gallup poll says it's just 3.4%. Can I just zone in on something for a minute? Our laws are being overturned. Our media and our TV and movies and all of the news stations and everything else are being overturned. And you would think that 80% of the population's gay. 
3.4%. That's the same number of people who have a stuttering problem. 3.4% is changing the law of this land, the moral code and ethic of this land, while what percentage does that leave behind? Over 97% of the people are doing nothing about it but embracing it. Where is the majority of Christians? This nation has a majority of Christian believers who are in fact saying nothing. Why? Our children, can I talk to you as parents? Our children are being fed this every day as a steady diet. And they're looking at you, mom and dad, and if you haven't given them a good, sound, biblical understanding of why this is an issue, they're going to buy it hook, line, and sinker. Shouldn't we just love everybody? Absolutely. Love, love. Love every one of them with the gospel message. And love them so much. And love this nation so much that you would not allow marriage to be destroyed and redefined. Can you agree with me on that? Already, California, Oklahoma, Virginia, Texas, Utah, and now Michigan have had the laws overturned. The people have spoken, but one judge in each of those states has overturned it. And that's ridiculous. And it's happening every week. Every week it's happening. It's outrageous. Now, we need to do something about that. I want to, I, I want to show this to you just because I want you to know my heart. All right, there was, a, there was a pastor in California who was put in jail because of what he said concerning the homosexual agenda. I want to ask you, will you visit me in jail? Because even today, and, and Allison was there, but even today, a black coalition of pastors from Detroit is meeting to, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, not amend, uh, appeal this judge's overturn of the law that's already on the books. So the black pastors are getting together to appeal, and, and they've gotten together with the, uh, what law association? The Thomas More Law Association is filing a brief to appeal this overturn, and they had a, 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 a press release today. So I was there, that's me, the, the white guy in the back. And I was there also the first time we met a couple months ago. Why? Now, now first of all, why? Why are black pastors coming together to make that uh, uh, appeal. Why, why are the black pastors getting together? Does anybody have an idea? That's not the reason, but that's a good one. Let me tell you legally here. The problem is the judge overturned this by citing a case where civil rights of the black community were violated by white laws, right? So he cited the case for homosexuals marrying it, matching it to civil rights in the black community. So it's important that the black pastors stand together and say, don't you dare put this in the same arena as the civil rights of African Americans. This is not 
the same situation. So it's really important that this black coalition is doing this and we need to stand together to do it. And I, I just put these pictures here because, and there I am too in the picket lines. I'm not trying to say, oh boy, look at me. I'm trying to say, join me and get out there. Do the work of the gospel. Show up, represent, and be there in the public square. Please, I'm asking you to join me in these fights. It's one thing to say it in this room where it'll do no good if it's not said out there. Amen? Anybody else want to amen me? Amen. amen. All right. Let's go on to the next, the third principle, and then we'll break for our small groups. The third principle is the work ethic. So we see the sanctity of marriage and family, and we see that that, is supposed, that will sustain the well-being of our nation, and so will a healthy work ethic. If you'll remember the Constitution of the United States, it says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, a better union than what we had with Britain, a more perfect union to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility, to provide a common defense, to promote the general welfare, and to secure the blessings of liberty, to ourselves and our posterity, that's our children, we ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States. It's to make a more perfect union and have a blessed society and an ordered life. So we have to secure the blessings of liberty. And if you'll remember, last week I told you the difference between equality and liberty. There's a big difference between equality and liberty. Now, we are moving towards the sense of we should have equality versus the concept of liberty. You need to pursue this. Because what will happen with equality is you're moving closer and closer to a socialistic and communist government where everybody should get everything the same and so forth. But principle number three concerning the work ethic is that the liberty to work as much or as little as you want and be rewarded for that effort. That's important to our liberty. The concept is, again, it's a creation mandate. How many of you know that? Right? People think that when God made man in the garden, man, this is great. He made a hammock, sat back and drank coconut juice. God put man to work. If you'll notice, God took Sabbath and put man to work. What does the Sabbath mean to God? The Sabbath doesn't mean that God was like, oh man, six days, that was like murder. Woo! <laughs> I'm tired. I need a break. God is never tired. Why did God Sabbath? Why did God rest? What it means is he took the throne of authority. He is now seated. It's completed. It is done. As king, he sits upon the throne and he is at rest or in session. And he called man to have authority over all that he had made. And he told man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. We were the stewards for God's handiwork. And as he rested in the sense that he now rules over a completed environment, he had us to tend it. And we 
failed quickly, didn't we? And then what was the curse? He said, you will now have to labor by what? The sweat of your brow. Because you dethroned God. Do you get the connection here? God didn't fall off his throne, but man no longer looked to God as the superior authority in his life by which he was to labor all things unto the Lord. He now looked to himself as God. And God said, with you in charge, pal, you're going to sweat and labor and toil. Now, let's go on. If you'll remember, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says this. Paul says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. If you'll remember, and we did a study on this on a Wednesday night, the book of Thessalonians. It was a pretty good one. I'd encourage you to get it. Um, We found out that Paul, in fact, birthed this church in three weeks while he was working as a tent maker. Every day. Why did he work as a tent maker? Because he said, I don't want any of you to think that I'm doing this for cash. He said, I want you to understand I'm doing this out of my love for you and for the sake of the gospel. And I don't want to be dependent on any one of you. And I set this in order so that you would understand that while we are working in common and we're caring for each other, there shouldn't be any deadbeats. I lived it out in front of you. Now the workman's worthy of his hire. And he validates that and says it's fine to pay those pastors and leaders. But he said, in this instance, I was doing this to teach you. And his basic principle is this. You don't work, you don't eat. The Protestant work ethic is this. And that's what America was built on, a Protestant work ethic. Take it right back to John Calvin again. The Protestant work ethic is based on this, the dignity of work. The dignity of you having the ability to pursue your desires, your heart's uh, uh, goals, and your desire to work. You no longer were in a caste system as other nations. You were no longer having to be what your father was and simply become that. The Protestant work ethic said if you work hard and you work honest, you will earn your own wage and you will be able to spend it as you wish. The Protestant work ethic talked about thriftiness, efficiency of one's occupation. It's rooted and based in the Reformation in the concept of this. All right? The concept is called the priesthood of all believers. In other words, in the Protestant Reformation, your work, and this is biblically based, your work is sacred to God. There's no hierarchy of better people where the priests are better than the congregation. There's none of that in biblical understanding in the Protestant Reformation. In the concept of the, of the uh, Protestant work ethic, it's this, that whatsoever you do, do it unto the glory of God. If you're a garbage collector, you're a sanctified garbage collector. You do all that you do in honor to God. If you're a janitor, you're a sanctified janitor. You do that, and every piece of paper you pick up, you do as unto God. If you're an engineer at GM, you're called by God to be the best engineer you can be and to be a light in that place. 
If you work at a milk factory, you are to present yourself on time, working hard, and to present the gospel as a milk worker. That's the concept of the American work ethic. They believed, and in this country we believed, that we show our faith in everything we do. So that it would be a time when an employer was looking for someone, if he saw that you were a Christian and a churchgoer, he would hire you. Because he knew as a Christian, you held your work ethic as responsible to God. I remember the first day I uh, got into work at General Motors, I was hired in as a clay modeler, a sculptor. And uh, when I got there, I got into the, the truck and bus studio. And I, my first time there, and I, I told folks that, uh, uh, you know, I'm a Christian. And I would encourage you that wherever you go, that's the first thing you talk about, Jesus. Don't be no undercover agent, right? Let them know. I'm a Christian. And I'll never forget one guy who said, well, what kind of Christian are you? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, are you like Joe? I said, I don't know Joe. He said, well, he comes in here preaching to everybody, but he hardly does any work. You'll, you can't find him. He's always on breaks. He's always in the back room. He's a, he, you know, he, he never does what he's supposed to do. And I thought, wow. You see, when the world's looking at Christians, they don't know all the different definitions. But if you're going to preach at someone and not show up for work, quit. Get out of there because you're a bad witness. Right? You see what I'm saying? Christians have a work ethic unto God. This is, if you will, or it was, the American way. You did your work unto the Lord. Now, there's good and bad with this. We understand that. There's blessings and curses. What happens with that kind of work ethic is it developed capitalism, which made America the most prosperous nation on the earth ever. Ever. Because of that Protestant work ethic. The problem is, people can get addicted to it. And they become workaholics because they get more for what they're doing. And they can get more and more. So there's a problem with it. And the second problem that's a real problem is prosperity can ruin the, the, the spiritual life of a person. And so we begin serving the, the mammon instead of God, the money instead of God. So those, there's dangers here. I'm not saying it's perfect, but God has us govern and rule our own lives. Amen? So tonight we've discussed two more principles of the Judeo-Christian ethic. It's what we believe as a people, as a society. It is an ethic that we have lived by. It's on the books historically. And we need to recapture that and bring this nation back to its spiritual roots so that we can be great once again. It's not too late if the people of God will do this. Amen? Amen. All right. We are splitting up into groups. We want you to enjoy conversation together, get into discussions. We've got a half hour to do that. Um, I would like two groups to go upstairs at either end of the balcony and then four groups in each corner of the room. All right? So if I could have the leaders stand up and have your hand up. Can I have two leaders that are going upstairs? What two leaders are going to go upstairs? Karen's going up. Nate's going up. Now, folks, you just pick any group you want to go to, five or six in a group. Uh, see the hands. Uh, Russ is going into the back left corner, Russ. Where are you going, Allison? Go in the room. Why not? You called it. You're up front. 
David Tucker's up front. Judy, you're here in the corner. Yeah. Allison's in the prayer room. Kenny Rick's in the back room. Two groups up in the balcony. Now you can rearrange.